from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Book Chats showcase Berkeley faculty authors engaged in public conversation about their own recently completed books. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Leslie Kirk of the Classics and Comparative Literature Departments and co-author Richard Neer of the Department of Art History at the University of Chicago, discussing their 2019 book, Pindar, Song, and Space, Towards a Lyric Archaeology. They are joined by Mario Tello, also of the Classics Department. So it's a great pleasure and honor to talk with Leslie and Richard about their extraordinary book, Pinder, Song and Space, Towards Lyric Archaeology, here it is in all its radiant splendor, uh, is an interpretive tour de force which does not just provide a revolutionary picture of a difficult, elusive, and often misunderstood Greek lyric poet, but models a radically new way of approaching the relationship between poetry, material culture, and the very idea of space in antiquity and beyond. I will first give a brief account of the book and some of its most provocative and challenging ideas, and then I will ask our authors some questions that build on that summary. Pindar, active in the first half of the fifth century BCE, is the master of choral lyric, poetry sung by an ensemble of dancing performers in celebration of the victories of athletes and their civic communities at the great festivals of the Hellenic world. Even in the act of reading, this corporeal assemblage, the chorus, vibrantly manifests its absent presence through graphic remainders of choreographic designs, that is, through the recursive triadic metrical structure, strophe antistrophe epode, that partitions the, the page layout with indentations and alignments of words. This is the partition of the sensible that shapes Pindaric verbal art. But another regime of the sensible moves this poetry. It is the insider's perspective on spaces, landscapes, buildings, and artifacts that Pindar unceasingly provides in his odes. While scholarship on Pindar and archaic lyric poetry in general is traditionally divided between contextualists and anti-contextualists, those who situate meaning in the historical circumstances of the poetry's ancient production or productions and immediate reception, and those who strive to keep interpretation strictly within the textual frame as a self-contained world, Richard and Leslie demonstrate that the two approaches can and should be brought together. They lay the foundation for a new kind of contextualism grounded in a unified vision of verbal and visual, that is topographical, architectural, and sculptural form. Formalist approaches have traditionally grappled with the imagistic, syntactical, and phonic complexities of Pindaric poetry, which, however, constantly defies critics' attempts to grasp and stabilize its characteristic density and ambiguity. 
Leslie and Richard show that Pinder's verbal overdetermination is inseparable from the visual and spatial experiences that his Epinician songs performed in various locations of the Greek world afforded to their audiences. They demonstrate the embeddedness of verbal texture and architectural art, revealing how the movements of choral bodies in performance enact the kinetic spectacle of sacred space, the natural and architectural landscapes where Pindaric poetry was performed and reperformed. As scripted in the Pindaric text, choral circular movements become markers of virtual and actual tours through sites and landscape. This is the meaning of the lyric archaeology in the title, the idea that the inside of Pindar's poetry, its verbal form, is not simply animated by, but dynamically fused with the, national, the notional outside of the topographical imaginary. Such an immersive aesthetic experience blurs verbal and architectural surfaces, textual and topographical structures. Rereading Pinder in this manner becomes an opportunity for reconceptualizing, defamiliarizing, or estranging, as the others put it, the very ideas of object, space, place, and site, and for using historically determined case studies to build up a wide-ranging theoretical picture, a politics of experience. When I say a politics of experience, I mean politics broadly as the grammar or the syntax of experience. It's working as a flexible and open system, but we're also dealing with politics stricto sensu, which becomes in one of the book's most striking formulations, a formal orientation of citizenry in the landscape a function of the ordering of bodies in space, bodies of characters and performers, and by extension, the bodies of an audience walking and touring on foot or with their physical or mental eyes as they listen or read. <coughs> Pindar's choral lyric, as Richard and Leslie put it, intervenes in space and indeed constitutes it no less directly than a piece of bronze or marble might do. Light, radiance, as they call it, is the fundamental aestheticized physical principle that creates relational spatiality, indeed what defines lyric archaeology. This radiance is exemplified by the swift-footed Iliadic Achilles, who, more or less than a character, is a gleaming silhouette, a beacon, or a luminous turning post, like a statue. This is the phenomenology of radiance, just one of the book's theoretically surprising contributions. This radiance turns artifacts into an iconic bundles of material energy, which the beholder aesthetically reflects back as wonder. Wonder is a kind of material in-betweenness linking subject and object. Space, in this perspective, becomes what Richard and Leslie call the plastic medium of wonder. We see 
Pindar's poetry emblematically becoming a wondrous radiant artifact in Olympian 7, where through the proliferation of references to light, lyric becomes luminous matter, at once liquid and solid, both gleaming wine and its scintillating container. This is not simply a metapoetic trope, it is a miniature imagistic reflection of an aesthetic effect, an invitation to receive poetic narrative as a flowing sensation emanating from a radiant beacon. And in fact, we know that this ode was inscribed in gold letters on the temple of Athena, Lindia, here it is, on Rhodes. The later one, but yeah. Whose remnants, <laughs> whose remnants at the top of the promontory still refract sunlight today. The assemblages of flashing Greek letters, visible at a distance from the temple, were indistinguishable from architectural reliefs, from non-signifying decorative motifs, and iconic cuts on the stony surface. One of the big payoffs of the book lies in its interrogation of the very notions of proximity and distance as the common ground for the making of and the aesthetic engagement with lyric poetry and visual art alike. Pinder reinvents these co-implicated notions manipulating or deterritorializing space imaginatively placing remote locations close to each other, as for example, Olympia and Syracuse in Olympia VI, a wonderful case study which documents what Richard and Leslie call a technology of transport. Their analysis makes us appreciate how these odes narrative sequencing, together with, it, with its triadic movement, closely corresponds step by step, we can say, to the movements of visitors, of tourists through the various components of the sanctuary of Olympia. The balletic itineraries and orchestric orientations that are scripted by the metrical outline of the Pindaric page coincide with the kinetic trajectories traced by the relational orientation of buildings and zones to each other. This is a kinetic but also tactile kind of viewing. Hearing or seeing gives us the impression of an intimate haptic encounter with the landscapes with which the spaces of Pindaric form merge themselves. Richard and Leslie took a trip together to Olympia and placed themselves in the position of the poems visitor readers, as we can see in this sequence of pictures. This is not a purely antiquarian reconstructive exercise, the impossible resurrection of a performative arche, the origin, but an immersion in an environment that is a sensorily yet fascinatingly spectral as the Pindaric Ode, animated yet haunted by the traces of choral bodies. The spatial relations traced in this book are politically charged, materializing ideological programs and turning aesthetics 
into a seductive means of interpolation. The new effects of reading that are drawn from the reinterpretation of a number of Pindaric oaths placed in a web of mutually illuminating relations with the epigraphic, archaeological, and art historical archives continually dazzle the reader. But what the book most impressively achieves is a theory of phenomenological reading that will condition interpretive strategies for many years to come. The call to see Pindaric oaths as magnifying the potential energies residing in worldly things, as we read in the Coda, also provides a fundamental intervention in the current debates on materiality and the reconceptualization of formalism. Okay, so now I'm gonna ask a few questions to our others. So this is a book about Pinder. So let me ask you, why did you start chapter one with a discussion of maps and uh, uh, Greek metrology in general? Well, so, um, you know, that's funny because that's one of the questions that one of our readers had was like, why is there all this stuff about Arontis and maps at the beginning of chapter one? So I guess I would say we very intentionally put that there because in the process of writing the book, at least for me, maybe this was always clearer to, clearer to Richard than it was to me, is that it's actually not a Pinder book, but about, it's a book about Greek spatiality, mm -hmm. Greek conceptions of space. And so part of putting this very kind of, this thing about maps and metrology and measuring and um, stadia right at the beginning is, is also to um, defamiliarize and to estrange the whole system to try to start from the get-go by forcing people to think about a world without maps. How do you function, how do you find your way around in a world almost entirely without maps and um, which we know of the Greek world, at least of the archaic and classical periods, and also in a world where you have no stable units of measure, it seems. Um, where we know that the stadion, the 100 meter race course at Olympia, um, we don't, I don't think we have a picture of it, do we? Anybody has a count? 200 meters. Oh, is it 200 meters? Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> the 200 meter stadion course at Olympia is ra a radically different length from the one at Delphi. So there's a variation of... It's of, you, a 30% difference, right? Up to 40% from one site to another. So, okay, so, so a stadion. <laughs> It's as though the 100-meter dash were a different length at, at Rio and at the London Olympics and at Los Angeles. It's, it's, and what's strange also is that the term stadion is the term for the unit of length. I mean, it is the, the term for the, the, the metrical unit. So there's a, there's a tremendous variation um, from place to place um, in, in those basic units. But it's even deeper than that. I mean, there's, there's variation even within an individual author. So um, author A, say Herodotus, will say it is X number of stadia from point A to point B, and it is Y number of stadia from point C to point D. And when you go and measure the distances, actually they don't, they, they don't work, at all. work out that way. So, so when, they give, when they give definitions, it's, they can't actually even test their definitions themselves because they don't have consistent concepts. Or you can find um, proportional systems underlying individual temples but it's hard to find, um, um, it's not the case that more than one temple will use the same actual unit. So you might have a similar proportion in temple A 
and temple B, but what the unit of that proportion is will be, will be tremendously flexible. And sometimes individual temples will have more than one unit. Um, so there's this, it's as though all the rulers are made of rubber. Um, and, and, and yet, they're able to you know, find their way around and build buildings. And so, so there's, there's, some, there's some ways in which it's, it's a system that's kind of like our system. It's enough that we can recognize it. And, and, but it's also somehow importantly different. I mean, the example, which is perhaps a little facetious, is, is it's like the game of Calvin Ball. Um, um, and the I game, as the last phrase says, you know, the only permanent rule of Calvin Ball is that you can't play it the same way twice. And, and, and Hobbes is saying, you know, the score is still Q to 12. <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, that's, there's a little bit of that in, 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 in reading these, these, these texts where there's, I mean, it's a system that works. You can play the game, but um, just as you can have a race. But the, the, the rules are enough like ours that we can recognize them as rules, but are somehow functioning in a slightly different way. Right. So and what happens to the concept of space when you inhabit a world like that? Exactly. And so... The, the idea then is that you uh, other technologies pick up the slack. So buildings, sculptures, boundary stones, lighthouses, and beacons organize and order space and make place. Um, they, they are landmarks. They help orient you and guide your way around. But the same is true of choral poetry and performance. It's measured speech, meter, and music and song and bodies moving in measured ways is in itself a, a technology for organizing and ordering space, and one that works collaboratively with all these other elements in the landscape. One, one thing that, actually it's nice to see Ron Stroud here, one thing that Ron impressed on me when I was a graduate student here back in Berkeley, back actually in Athens, um, was the extreme um, uh, I guess, uh, fragmentation or balkanization of, of both ancient and, and to some extent modern Greece as well. And this is a world in which every little town has, has its own name for the months of the year, the days of the week, the hours of the day. They have different festivals. They have different alphabets. They have different they, gods. They have different gods. I mean, um, it's, it's extraordinarily fragmented. But what is actually consistent is, is poetic meter. Mm -hmm. so, so the word for the, the units of metrical length can, can vary from place to place, even if they have the same name. But the poem's going to scan. The poem's going to scan in much the same way, regardless of where you're singing it. So when you key poetry to dance and to, say, a procession through a town or a circle around an altar, and those movements are keyed to poetic meter, you have a kind of consistency that you don't have in other domains of, of early Greek life. So poetry has a particular, the potential to have a particularly important function in the demarcation and organization of landscapes and cityscapes and so on. Right, space, so, the organization of space yeah. and the making of place. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we're thinking about these then as a suite of technologies that collaborate for space. Yeah, poems, statues, buildings, racetracks, landscapes, all these things have to be seen together. And there's, there's, there's disciplinary distinctions that make it hard to, to connect those different facts or data, those different pieces of information. For example, I mean, there's the, the arcana of Pindar um, is, is forbidding for, for an art historian or a classical archaeologist. And in the same way, there's an equivalent kind of arcana around, say, classical architectural terminology. Um, right, and each or one where has to find a vase in a collection, or yeah, what CVA means, or where are those inscriptions really? <laughs> let alone that Pindar is just really hard. Um, um, so, so all of these things are, are, are make it difficult to assemble 
the, the, different, um, the different data points, if one could call it that way. I don't, I don't mean to, 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 to flatten everything, but to, to bring together different bibliographies and different subfields um, in ways that are, are difficult for us in some ways, but there are, are, would have been inhabited um, um, by the Greeks themselves. So um, I would say the book is a great um, example of how to read poetry and visual art together and bring them together. So I wonder whether you can give us some examples of how you were able to combine the visual and textual uh, archives within a unified you know, frame of reading and uh, bring out this top, topopoietic, this space-making uh, rhetoric. Yeah, well, maybe we'll do that in pieces, Richard, yeah, first, yeah. just do a couple of visual examples. Yeah, maybe just to, serve, just to emphasize again, um, um, we're trying to see, Leslie brought up the term of a, of, of a suite of technologies, and what we're trying to see is how these different kinds of artifacts, both verbal and material, could work together to make a kind of larger system that could be improvised, that, that, that could be you know, used on the fly and doesn't necessarily have one set unitary function, but to see them all together as a, as a technology that gets something done, um, as opposed to just as a series of functionless ornaments is, I think, an, an important aspect of all of this. Um, so, you know, Pindar's poetry is, is occasional, so it's meant to be, it's you know, based on a particular event and has um, um, definite performance context, although it can be re-performed in multiple areas. And often Pindar will refer to buildings and other features of the landscape in his poetry. And, and this is actually a kind of precious, um, almost first-person account of what it's like to look at these buildings, how it's, what it's like to inhabit these landscapes. So that's a kind of underutilized resource, I, th I think, um, or we think. And so what we've tried to do is to find ways, in either ways in which we can look at the particular landscapes, cityscapes that Pindar is talking about, or conversely, to find sometimes generic or thematic similarities between his poems on the one hand and other sorts of monuments. So to give you an example of both, um, you know, the poems are, the one, on, the one on the left is tiny, and the one on the right is big. So just to, just to be clear, these are very different <laughs> kinds of monuments. Um, um, but it's over life size, so that's. Um, but um, um, the, the one on the left is a little, it's a little votive figurine that shows a person, he would have had a, a, a shield on one arm, um, and he's preparing to, to run a, a race. And it's a kind of thing that one would give to the deity in commemoration of a, a victory. Um, so we, this one, we don't have the actual um, base that it stood on, but we do have other bases for small statues that were used um, um, for, uh, for victory monuments. So it's generically like the, the odes that Pindar's composing. Pindar composes a big grand ode for somebody who's won a victory um, in a contest such as this one. And this little monument is, is a kind of similar sort of thing. It's, it's, it's a victory type of gift. The one on the right, on the other hand, is, a, is um, probably a votive monument. It represents uh, probably the god Zeus throwing a thunderbolt. Um, 
And, uh, and, and this shares some of the themes with Pindaric poetry, although generically it doesn't have the same kind of tight fit as, uh, as the one on the left. In each case, what both of them have is you have to imagine them being polished and being really shiny. That's the radiance that, that Mario was talking about. In a, you know, in a world where most things are, are not bright and gleaming, these, these things shining in the Greek sunlight will have been really eye-catching and eye-popping. And, and in each case, there's a way in which the figure is, um, has a kind of incipient movement out towards you, either about to run or, in the case of the Zeus, like throwing a thunderbolt, a big like, piece of light <laughs> at you. Like, that's, that's what it shows. So there's a way in which the works are kind of, in their, in their eye-catching, sort of dazzling brightness, um, are, are recapitulating what they show, what they narrate. Right? It's bright and shiny, it hits your eye, and it shows a guy throwing a, a, a piece of lightning at you. Um, and there are similar sorts of images, similar sorts of ways of relating to space, um, um, very, either in a very tight fit, like this is actually the same kind of figure, or in you know, looser but nonetheless discernible ways with the poems of Pindar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I thought the example I would do, just talk about very quickly, is we analyze in one chapter, in chapter four, a fragment of a dithyram, which we um, argue was performed in the old Agora of Athens. Um, this is, to me, this was really big news. <laughs> the archeologists have known this since the 80s, that actually there was an, an old Agora of Athens, a pre-classical Agora, in a different place from the classical Agora, and they moved it all. Uh, to the other side of the Acropolis, right? Pretty much. This was first argued actually even in the mid-70s, and then an inscription was found in 1980. Well, but that, people were still yeah. in denial for a while, right? But well, anyway, there is some, some people still think that it's, some people still think that it was not the case, case, but I think so that the preponderance an, of the view is, yeah, yeah. There is an archaic Agora, and w our argument is that this, this dithyram fragment was performed by chorus dancing around an altar in the old Agora, um, and kind of calling out, pointing to monuments in the vicinity as they circle around the altar because they say, we'll start from Zeus. This has always been a problem for this poem because it shouldn't start from Zeus, it's a dithyram, so it should be about Dionysus, and nobody knows what that means, but there's a way in which they circle around and they call out, point to, as they circle, all these various monuments. Um, and the point is not just the you know, positivist identification of these different monuments, but to argue that the poem in performance, which is a circle and is obsessed with the imagery of circles, and crowns and wreaths, and <laughs> plating of crowns and circles, and is, is organizing this very disorganized hodgepodge space of ancient Athens, which was built up and accreted very much piecemeal, um, and making it into a, an order for the, for the audience and for the performance through the performance of the dancing while also um, thematizing its own circularity, the circular dancing, the circular crowns, the circuit uh, of, of coherent, cogent space that they're making through the dance and through the performance. So and, and the altar itself was the zero milestone for the city, which right, is the, the, right, the right, center so point. Yeah, it's literally the, it's the, it's the navel of the city. As yeah, Pinder calls, calls it, it the omphalos. Yeah, the astagon, yeah. yeah, the navel of the town. So those are some examples. I think maybe we have to stop there. Um, no? So is there time for another question on my part to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so maybe we can talk a little bit about this uh, very um, enticing phrase, lyric archaeology, and uh, how you see it, and especially 
how you think it can contribute to um, problematizing certain disciplinary boundaries, you know, uh, within the, the field of classics. And mm -hmm. Well, so, yeah, lyric archaeology was a, a phrase we came up with. We started, or we, we said, no, we can't call it an archaeology of lyric, because then again, people think we're just kind of giving you the positivist, oh, he must have meant this monument <laughs> when he Trying said that. Like, we didn't want to be talking about the reality or saying that that's what we're doing, the archaeology of lyric. So lyric archaeology was just our catchphrase to try to talk about um, putting together all these archives that are still very divided in the discipline, that this is an essential thing. We have to bring together all these archives because for Pinder and for the audiences he's writing for and the people who are building these monuments and carving these sculptures, the, these disciplinary boundaries don't exist. That this is for them, as I said, a collaborative um, assemblage or a suite of technologies that all work together. Um, so we wanted to put them back together, but that's actually very challenging for some, for the, some of the reasons we've already said. There are so many kind of barriers internal to the field between different subfields that are hard to get over. And I would say Richard has always been a fantastic reader of poetry, but for me, like I didn't know all this archaeology stuff. Like it was news to me that there was an old agora. I had it was a very steep learning curve to learn all this stuff about archaeology so that we could do these things together. The caveat here is Pindar is like the most difficult poet, and Leslie is like the world's expert on it. So like just, just like just 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 to be like very clear. But but one other thing that I, that, I, that I would add here is is it's, it's both the archives, but it's also different ways of treating those archives, different what, what you called reading habits. So there's you know there's ways in which a, a Pindarist will will read. There's ways in which you know an epigrapher might read. There's ways in which art historians look at things. There's ways in which archaeologists might look at the same kind of object. There's different you know methods that go along with different subdisciplines, and just as the archives are are siloed, so too are the the, the reading habits or the approaches, the, just the way in which one looks at the object, and and to cross those up as well, I think is 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 really useful and important. So to try to read. You know, we read, if, if we get a Greek text and we find it between blue covers in, in an Oxford classical text, then we read it one way. And if we find it in a big book of epigraphy, then we read it an, another way. And, and so I've been struck, for example, there's, there was an argument made some years ago that there's no independent discourse on early Greek art from the archaic and classical periods. And you know, there's a big fat book of all the verse inscriptions that accompany statues and sculptures in, in Greece, and they're all poems about sculpture, there's, there's a huge, huge discourse. But the disciplinary divide is such that one can actually just not see that if it doesn't take a particular form, that you don't read it in a particular way, that, it, that therefore it doesn't exist. So it's both the archives, but also I would say the reading habits that go, that mm -hmm. go with them. Yeah, no. So to, so to um, And yeah. what you referred to briefly earlier of going flat, right? Like yeah. that we also were committed yeah, yeah. to a democracy of evidence, right? Like yeah. usually, Depending on which subfield you're in, there's background and there's foreground. One there's context the and there's poem, or there's the Herodotus's history, so that's background for a statue. Right. right? We wanted to say, no, it, let's go flat. Everything is on the same level. Nothing is prior. Space itself is constituted by all of this stuff working together. <clears throat> Because there isn't in control, right? There isn't there isn't like some sort of third term out. I mean, there's there's the actual landscape, but there isn't a system. There isn't any system. There isn't an apparatus that they have 
for um, getting the kind of overviews that you can get in, say, poetry. So Pindar can talk about the relationship between, say, an island in the Aegean, a city in Libya, and, um, and you know, the, the larger Greek world. And that's, that's their way to envision that. And that's, that's the technology that they have to, to envision the cosmos, if we can call it that. Um, so yes, one can't, one can't have this kind of foreground background uh, distinction. Rather, what you're seeing is the poet and oftentimes important political figures trying to intervene into their, their landscape. And I think then the final thing about lyric archaeology, because we did try to come up with what's our methodology right, yeah. in the quota, and we yeah. were like, well, yeah. <laughs> I guess there's one, two, three. Yeah. Like one is yeah. like combining archives, two is close reading yeah. of all the different material in the archives, and three is that it's not about just the stuff, this physical building, this monument, again, in this sort of positivist, we can identify it, but that it's about relations, relations among all these things in space and about the very criteria and presuppositions for constituting spatiality. That's what we're trying to get at through, yeah. through the analysis of all the different pieces. Yeah, I mean, this is the apparatus and the apparatus, but it's not just a poem and it's not just a building, it's, a, it's not just a statue, it's a, it's a set of things and the way in which you establish relations between them. But that's, that's it's, it's like a giant gadget. Um, how I describe it. Like we have our iPhones and we look and that's how, you know, it's very hard to envision going from here to the Oakland airport as I will do later on today without imagining that little blue dot going down the, 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 the road. But that, they don't have that. They, they have another way of inhabiting space and visualizing it. And we're arguing this is one of their, one of their key apparatuses. So maybe we can open it up to the audience now? Yeah, Andy. Richard, Leslie, <clears throat> thanks very much. I haven't read the book, but I've heard a lot about it, obviously. Um, you clearly added another dimension to the, the ancient audience's experience of Pindar's poetry. One of the things that has always bothered me about it uh, is precisely how difficult and how dense and how compressed it is. It's also being um, sung mm -hmm. and danced at the same time. Mm -hmm. And as a one-time singer, I know how hard it is to articulate language, and you know, I listen to uh, Handel, for example, on the radio. How much can you actually understand of the words? Famous problems. So maybe you could speak a little bit to how far the audience would appreciate this other dimension. Would it just whiz past them so fast that it would be a, a, a wonderful kind of impressionistic blur? Or were these poems sung slowly, repeated? Yeah, yeah, that's a tough question. This, this does get back to the whole thing about the distribution of the sensible, right? Because I, I do have my moods where I'm like, it's so damn hard, nobody could understand a Pindar. And Pindar actually says that. I mean, <laughs> that's right, yeah. yeah. But, the, um, the crowd can't understand And, uh, and I, we don't know anything about the music or the performance, honestly. Or, or I mean, I, we think maybe we know that if it's triadic, they, they dance in a circle in one direction, then they dance in a circle in the other direction, and for the epode, they stand. So, And work has been done to show that some of the most important parts of the poem happen in the stand when maybe you could hear a little better because they were just standing and singing and not <laughs> dancing and singing at the same time. So. That is a serious problem, and we don't know, did they sing them slowly? But I do think they must have performed them over and over and over again. 
Um, we, we're pretty sure there was re-performance. And also, I mean, the other kind of argument people make is that this is a culture which has a very high level of performative literacy. Like people dance and sing in choruses, just like your average Joe citizens, right? Dance and sing in choruses all the time from the time they are ch children all the way through their lives. So maybe that gives them more of an ability to actually understand and comprehend this stuff. And, and I guess I would say also the sort of mutual reinforcement between the poem, the language of the poem as a sung and danced and the landscape might have actually helped make it somewhat more comprehensible. So if I can say something, um, well, one of the contributions of the book is also to push against the representational and making an argument for seeing this poetry as something that can be appreciated as sensation, even going beyond meaning. So you can appreciate the sound or the spectacle in itself, even if you don't understand everything. So when you talk in the book about the aniconic dimension of Pindari poetry, this seems to me a great contribution precisely because the tendency has always been you know, to try to identify everything. And in fact, then the question arises, well, to what an extent you know, did people understand what he said? Well, uh, seeing poetry as sensation, as radiance, as uh, even a beacon, in a sense, brings out a new dimension that can take us outside of the conundrum of uh, to what an extent did they understand this? Yeah, and one said that these things are on a spectrum, and they're on a spectrum um, in, in a number of different ways. On the one hand, one can talk about a spectrum in, say, early Greek monuments from the aniconic to a sort of robustly iconic sort of monument. And once upon a time, it was thought that there was a kind of historical development that correlated to that. So like the early ones were aniconic, that is to say, just sort of pillars. And then later on, they became figural. And that's not the case. They're, they're continuously available options all through archaic and classical and indeed Hellenistic periods. Um, but, uh, but you can also have um, um, images as the sort that we saw before, where, where there's a way in which the, the image can thematize or otherwise reflect upon features that might not in themselves be depictive. For example, brightness and shininess. Um, so there's, you, know, you, can, you can run all the way from being something that is truly aniconic and doesn't have any representational content, I suppose. Here, yeah, so these are boundary Google. stones. Or boundary this, yeah, this is Greek sculpture. I mean, this is, this is important. This is a kind of thing called, a, it's, a, it's a goulos, it's a cube. It's, a, it's from a grave monument from, um, from the island of Thera. Um, yeah, it looks like Donald Judd, but that's, that's classical sculpture. Um, um, and you can My see there's, there's a kind of, you know, just a hop, skip, and a jump from something like that to these rows of seated figures from, from near Miletus, which are kind of cubic and blocky in the same way. So it's a spectrum, not an absolute divide. And one can, there's going to be similar sorts of things with, uh, with, with poetry. Sometimes you'll catch a word, sometimes you won't. It's, it's like following music in any other context. You might be listening and following, say, you know, a motivic development, and then you get distracted, and then you come back and you hear it. And that's, that's I think, part of an ordinary part of reading. Um, and, and listening, but, but um, I think probably the key point is that the poems, like the statues, can what we would call thematize or otherwise make prominent some of these features and integrate them into larger discursive or narrative systems. And that's part of the ideological work. Right, part of the ideological work is this process of ordering that Leslie was describing, and this can, when these things are sponsored by states or rulers or tyrants, there's often you know something 
fairly obviously political and ideological in that operation. Other questions? So maybe I can ask, what was it like to write a book together? You know, not many books in the humanities are co-written, uh, co-authored, so. Yeah. Well, it was a total pleasure, actually. Yeah, really, fun. just a joy. But we always get this question. People are fascinated, like, how yeah. did you do it? How did you write together? Um, and, and so I always, you know, I have a pat answer, like, well, you know, some, some of the things, Richard already had a whole kind of cool argument about Cyrene, and I took over a bunch of stuff and then, you know, wrote a chapter about more digging into the, the Cyrenios, the three Cyrenios that responds to his chapter, or like with chapters two and three, where you wrote this whole fantastic thing about going from archaic individual singleton sculpture to multi-figure monuments that incorporate narrative, and then I wrote figure three kind of in response to that, chapter three in response to that, like Pinder tracing the same set of effects through Pinder or analogous set of aesthetic effects in Pindar. And then in other chapters, I think I spent a, one or two weeks in Chicago, one summer, I can't remember. We taught a seminar. Yeah. Well, we taught a seminar together in spring yeah. 2013, yeah. but then remember I was back yeah. in summer 2015. We met every day and we talked for several hours about Olympians <laughs> 6. And you know, I have to say, this is another thing, I, the great thing that Richard gave me, because you know, at a certain point as a Pinterest, I'm like, okay, I get this poem. Or possibly there are still poems where I'm like, okay, I'm never gonna get this poem. <laughs> but certain poems where I was like, yeah, I got this one, I kind of got it figured out what's going on here. And Richard was relentless. <laughs> With Richard, it was like there was no stopping, there was no bottom, every word. <laughs> we had to just keep at it for hours. And that was great for me. I mean, it was totally mind expanding. So we spent like several hours a day, fun. every day for a couple of weeks talking about Olympian Six. And then I went home and like wrote this maddened, crazy, you know, 50 page <laughs> thing about Olympian Six. And then Richard, you know, took a blue pencil to it and <laughs> said, okay, you're really It was a lot of that the other way around though. I mean, those, <laughs> so those, those, so yeah. that's how we did it. I mean, some, some parts are written by individuals, and, but, but a lot of it, you know, totally worked over together. But it's also true that we, I mean, I mean, I was Leslie's student, so so we've been talking about this on and off for like twenty years. Yes. Um, so so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of agreement, I think, already about the kind of basic shape of the of the terrain. Um, you know, I I as I said, I've never had a thought about Pindar that didn't come from Leslie. So we agreed on everything. It was really very very, very, very confusing. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, but it was it was. Um, and I think you know it's it's good to have um, two separate areas of competence. You know, um, I I I can say without shame that I don't understand this line. You know, I just I can't figure out what he's saying, and and so Leslie will, but Leslie can't. Right, so, or um, I will say to Richard, I have no idea what this argument yeah, is about yeah. filled in wells and yeah. in the old yeah. Agora. What the yeah. hell is that yeah. about? Yeah. Or yeah. like this potsherd being here? What does that mean? But I think the one thing that was most striking is that for all that, for all of that, nonetheless, it really is. It really is striking how, on the one hand, I feel that classics and classical archaeology and classical art history have a kind of holism that is actually somewhat unusual within humanities departments. There isn't, I think, the same kind of tight connection between, say, other areas in which I work, like, say, French art and Romance language and literature departments. There's not that kind of presupposition of familiarity that one has in the classical archaeology. On the other hand, there are really, really surprising and striking divisions of the sort that we were talking about earlier 
just how to read the, the citations, how to, or what, what a complete citation looks like. Um, I mean, there's a lot of protocols that are very formal in this field. It's one of our, it's one of our glories, but it does mean that, it's, that it's, um, it's actually harder in some ways in the technical details than one might have, than yeah, I had suspected it would be. I agree, it shuts people out. Yeah, it shuts people the out. The structures yeah. um, and protocols of the subfields really exclude people yeah. and make it harder to do this kind of work. So, it, you know, and I also think we could do this kind of work because we're both established. Richard's right. written four or five books. Yeah. This is my fourth book. It's much harder for younger people yeah. to do it, yeah. sadly. There is a question there. Uh, the introduction referred to the Pindar's page. Mm. I wonder if you could tell us what textual format the odes would have taken originally. Yeah, well, presumably written on papyrus, um, probably not with metrical um, breaks, as far as we know. This is all guesswork. We don't have any early things preserved. We have papyri that are much later, but so that's what we assume. Because there have to have been actors, uh, you know, somebody had to, there had to be a text to teach the chorus from. And, and the text had to have been sent and way back in the 1950s in the sort of great book on the um, transmission of the Pindaric text, uh, Iraguin was already saying, well, and they must have written a copy for the patron. The guy who commissioned the ode probably got us a copy, and that's what you would use as the basis or the script for re-performances. So that's about all we know. There, none of those are preserved. But that's what we mean by the Pindaric page, yeah. I mean, I think Mario was referring to the modern Pindaric page, which is the Teubner edition with all the, well, that's, you know, that's metrical apparatus <laughs> and, no, it, and the breakup of the, of the text on the page. Yes, absolutely. This is how we I approach mean, Pindar, yes. Other questions? Yeah, Tim. So can you talk about the transferability of this project? I mean, is this, is this only Pindar doing this kind of stuff? Or, or do other Greek yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, I, I would hope that there's ways in which it's in which it's transferable. I mean, I think the one article, for example, that both of us were inspired by is an early piece by Anne Carson mm -hmm. um, on Bacchylides and on the way in which Bacchylides describes two monuments um, at, at Delphi, these, these tall columns with tripods on them. And you can see there's a whole way in which, he's, in which his language is, is, is mobilizing many of the themes that, that we're talking about. Um, so a lot of the poems are they're, they're, they're mobile. I mean, one of the features of poetry is that it's, and that the Greek poets talk about is precisely its mobility. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, it's a fair question, Tim. One of the reasons we did Pindar is because Pindar, more than any other, I would say, Greek lyric poet, has all this stuff in him, both uh, topography, landscape, buildings, agalmata, which are sort of shiny dedications, things like that. But, but it's also because Pindar is the best preserved of all the Greek lyric poets and the, the only poet for whom we have a, a sizable corpus of whole poems. Right? All the rest is fragmentary, even most of Achilles. But that doesn't mean that this is not transferable. I mean, you were just saying to me, oh, this stuff is all over tragedy. Like, what about, what about the Oedipus at Colonus or, or those, all those inscriptions on statues, verse inscriptions on statues are just begging to be read this way, 
right, together, much more integrated with the monuments, but even outside of Greece, I think for lots of other cultures where you, that are performative cultures, like it'd be super interesting to look at whatever texts we have in Venice and put them together with ritual processions or, you know, stuff yeah. like that, and monuments, right? I would imagine in the pre-modern period all over the place, there'd be a lot to do. I don't know if that answers your question. I think one of the things I think is particularly significant in this case, though, is, is its relationship to, to maps and metrology. Because that is something that is, that is it, it changes even in the Greek situation. I mean, later on, they, they do develop different technologies. They develop different, I mean, this is a period in which basic discoveries are being made in math. You know, like irrational numbers are being, you know, the square problems about the square root of two. I mean, there's there's issues, and those actually do become become relevant. You know, Plato writes dialogues on these topics. So, so um, there is a particular way in which this case puts space at issue in ways that are not um, that are that are particularly <coughs> important and prominent. You could import it, yes, but it's going to be. Um, it's going to be, there's going to be changes that will occur. Another thing, though, that was really, I think, important for us in thinking about it was a book about Polynesian navigation um, and, and how one navigates across vast oceans where there's no, no landmarks um, and what kind of conception of space people have in, in those sorts of situations, um, which has to do with stars and, and, and different ways of imagining their lying, horizon. Lying perpendicular to the wave in the bottom of the boat and feeling it. Yeah, so all kinds of different. <laughs> That's so, so, how you get from one crazy. But in this case, we have the narrative life. poetry that is sort of about those things. If I if I can, so we have a kind of a kind of richness. Of, of of primary material that's not always that's that's not unique but is distinctive. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you again. Well, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. I just want to thank you, but I also want to thank Mario and the Townsend Center as well um, for, for being such great hosts. Thank you. And we should also do a shout out to Emily Mackle, who's already gone, but was one of the co-editors of our series. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in the series.